Hey, hey, water coolians. Welcome back to another episode of Water Cooler Talk Podcast. Today on the show, we are joined from Spain by new friend, philosopher, and author of the new book, La Zerigüeya de Schrodinger, which is available now in Spanish, or Schrodinger's Possum, when the book is translated to English in the near future, which discusses how animals experience and understand death. Susanna Manso to have a wonderful conversation about morality within the animal kingdom, death, and finality worm milk of of course and why six percent this is a true fact six percent of americans believe they could wholeheartedly cleanly win a bare-handed fight against a fully grown grizzly bear if i was a betting man and i am what's the money line on this podcast being the best water related podcast there on the internet but i would bet on america becoming about six percent smaller if this actually happened but from this episode and a concept we continue from my conversation with joe and replication crisis the current method of how we study the behavior of animals is not always beneficial to those animals we can do better in separating how species behave and react with the world outside of always comparing it to humans or always putting them in these lists where humans are at the top of that list as much of a hot take as it is not Humans are not the center of the universe. We are merely just a small part of the greater cosmos of existence that was here before and will be here long after. Dropping a little existentialism on you today. But just because, say, a squirrel hasn't developed the atomic bomb or even the sitcom format doesn't mean that they don't play an important role in the ecosystem of Earth. We each have a different role to play, and among those roles are what I believe to be a wide array of values that determine how we influence the evolution of the world and how the world influences the evolution of us. Sometimes it's okay to change shoes within our species and spend the whole day walking in the shoes of, say, that tiny squirrel, which I'm realizing, like, squirrels don't wear shoes, but also, could you imagine Complex's sneaker shopping, but with squirrels? complex. Let's talk. So before we jump into the conversation and to help our audience grow and these conversations to reach a broader audience, please subscribe to Water Cooler Talk Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on Instagram at watercoolertalkpod where you can interact with the episode's topic. I mean, share your thoughts on if you could be reincarnated into any animal, what animal would you want to be? Share your thoughts in the comment section for this episode's post, or just leave us a short positive review on Apple to help further support the show. So thank you. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, this is Water Cooler Talk episode 73 titled Elephant Fight Club with Susanna Monceau. Enjoy! This is the story of a podcast that takes weird news from across the world. And while many of these stories may seem fake, they're absolutely not because they're real. A spontaneous decision to write a book. I was approached by the editor. Um, he just saw me give a talk and he really liked it. And he asked me to write a book. And I didn't have any book projects or anything. And I thought, well, I guess I could write a book. <laughs> I guess I have the time. <laughs> sure, why not? And I, I thought, I'm just going to write something really short for, for like the general public in like three months. And then it took me eight months, which is much longer than I had planned, but still 
pretty short for a book. Yeah, I know. I have tried working on like scripts and stuff. Yeah. You think it's going to be this easy process. And then like two years later, you're like, oh, yeah, it's maybe not as easy as I thought. Yeah. So eight months is, I think, quite OK, mm -hmm. considering how long these projects usually take. It makes the time put in worth the effort, right? Yeah, for sure. For sure. <laughs> All right. Well, Suzanne, are you ready to jump into our first news article of the episode? Sure. Let's go for it. This is from the London Economic Lifestyle, written by Jack Pete, May 17th, 2021. 8% of Americans think they could beat an elephant in a fight. Yes, you heard that right. Almost 1 in 10 Americans say they could beat an elephant in an unarmed fight, according to a poll released by a British-based market research and data analytic firm, YouGov. YouGov surveyed people from the United States to see which animals they thought they could handle in combat. While 23% of Americans thought they could beat a large dog and 15% thought they could take on a king cobra, a surprising number of people said they would fare okay against sturdier opposition. Indeed, 8% of Americans thought they could beat an elephant, a gorilla, or a lion in an unarmed fight. Unarmed fight. Just your bare knuckles. While 6% believed they could take on and win against a grizzly bear with no trouble. 6%. No trouble with the grizzly bear. By and large, however, most were not overly confident in their fighting abilities. Even though the majority were convinced they could beat a rat, 72%, a house cat, 69%, and a goose, 61% in a fight, 17 to 24% still feel like they would lose a struggle with such creatures. The only other animal listed that Americans tend to think they could take in an unarmed fight is a medium-sized dog, although not even half, 49%, are sure of this. The confidence, as mentioned earlier, drops even further with the dog size. Only 23% of Americans think they could beat a large dog in a fight. So Suzanne, I like articles like this, that regardless of how strange <laughs> they may be, but they often subconsciously bring up this conversation on human exceptionalism. You know, the belief that humans are the most important thing in the universe. You know, we're superior to nature. Nature is here to serve us. You know, so what are your thoughts on this concept of human exceptionalism and how do you see it impacting our relationship with animals? Yeah, I think that that it's one of the, the, the biggest problems when it comes to our relationship with animals. Um, this idea that we are... Um, exceptional. I, I began reading this book recently by Melanie Challenger, How to Be an Animal, and it starts off with this phrase, the world is dominated by an animal who thinks it's not an animal. That's a good quote. Yeah, yeah, I, I love it. And I think it's completely on point. And I believe that, that it's at the root of the way that we um, treat animals, the way we exploit nature, and so on, this thinking we are the most important species, everything else is here to serve us. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's been... What has been worrying the worrying me the most in the past few years in my research, and I've been trying to sort of study those capacities that we have used to ground this notion of human exceptionalism, because um, we, we tell these stories about ourselves like we are the only animal uh, with morality, mm -hmm. we are the only animal with a concept of death, we are the only animal that uses tools, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, so I'm kind of interested in addressing these claims and seeing to what extent they're actually true. Yeah, kind of this like us versus them mindset, which as we've seen throughout the history of mankind does not always end well. And like, I do understand like the concept of evolution and it, having quote unquote placed humans at the top of the food chain, you know, religion says this as well, I believe, but that shouldn't place us say uh, above an ant in the importance of the, the universe, you know, both us 
and an ant have an important role to play in you know the ecosystem and we don't necessarily know how the other would survive if the other didn't exist we have ideas you know we understand like how humans are affected by animals going extinct. But even to that point, you know, what would humans be if dinosaurs never went extinct? Yeah, I think there are so many problems with this claim and there are so many different ways of uh, attacking this notion of human exceptionalism. And some have some um, scholars focus on precisely this idea of, of all species being important from an ecological perspective. Um, others like me focus more on the kinds of psychological capacities that we usually use to ground this notion and so on. And I think that it's it's a very difficult notion to actually defend once you take God out of the picture. Mm -hmm. And that's like a lot of, in my research, I was looking at morality and morality is often defined within religion, you know, this right and wrong. If you do good, you go to heaven. If you do bad, you go to hell. And trying to, as we were talking before we started recording, giving animals human characteristics mm -hmm. isn't always the correct way about going about it. Yeah. You know, kind of getting into ethics and morality as someone who works within animal ethics, you know, we're having these conversations in regards to animal personhood. Uh, for example, Pablo Escobar's hippos recently just gained personhood. Uh, you know, this movement that aims to give animals rights as a legal person, which, I mean, is not uncommon. We see this being done with, say, corporations. But why do you believe there is such a debate over animal personhood and animal rights, giving animals the rights to be treated as individuals? I mean, I think the problem is that we see our own lifestyles threatened by these sorts of movements. Um, because so much of what we do and the way we live um, rests upon the exploitation of other species. So actually, people tend to be much more on board with granting personhood to a river or a jungle or things like that than to actual animals, because I think... They are. They feel much more threatened by that. Kind of back to, I mean, at least how I see it, that like us versus them, you know. And and we've had similar conversations on the show before in regards to like what constitutes life and purpose, and is it possible to define living? You know, does a does a, a lab rat that is born and raised for the specific purpose of being tested on live out its purpose and in turn define life? Does that play into this? human exceptionalism factor and humans playing God? And is there a God above us that gives us purpose? But as we, at least in what I've been able to find, as we continue to understand animals and their sentience, time and time again, we come to find that they play an important role just as humans do in the past, present and future. And, you know, I like to look back at the work Jane Goodall did and continues to do. She's still alive. But in understanding how chimps, you know, form these complex structures within themselves and how they're able to teach each other different things. And it's always seemed like kind of absurd to me how we view animal rights and the beliefs that animals have no morals as well, which just seems ridiculous. And as I mentioned, comes to this idea of religion. And I think a lot of people try to put a religion within animals. And I mean, do animals even believe in religion? Who knows? And I know you have discussed this concept, morality without mind reading, and use the example of empathy. So you don't mind ex like explaining a bit more about like this concept of morality without mind reading? Yeah, so well, um, that was actually the topic of my doctoral dissertation. It's been a while since I've thought about that. Um, but I went on a deep dive on all your research. I can see that, yeah. <laughs> so there's, there's this big debate about whether animals can mind read and mind reading makes reference to the ability to attribute mental states to others. So the ability to understand that others have 
things like beliefs, desires, perceptions, sensations. Mm-hmm. And there's been the, like this this accumulation of evidence that points to animals being capable of behaving morally. At the same time, there's a very big debate on whether they can actually mind read. There's a, there was a very big controversy um, a few years ago about the evidence that we have on chimpanzee mind reading because it seems like you can explain it, like all the evidence we, we have in terms of what's called behavior reading, which is like reasoning in terms of others' behaviors rather than in terms of the underlying mental states. Mm-hmm. And so I thought that the case for animal morality was... Uh, potentially threatened by this controversy surrounding the notion of mind reading because intuitively it seems that in order to be a moral being you need to um, be able to understand that others can feel pleasure and pain for example right that others can be affected by your actions that they can suffer from them and so on and so I, in my doctoral dissertation, I developed this kind of deintellectualized account of morality that allows us to um, relinquish mind reading. It, it would be um, a form of morality that relies solely on on behavior reading. Kind of like a, I, I don't know if this is correct, but kind of like a dog seeing its owner sad and then cuddling up to the owner. Right. Without really being able to understand that he's sad. As, as a mental state, yes, but okay. just being maybe uncomfortable uh, with his behavior due to some sort of biological mechanism and the dog, some sort of empathic uh, mechanism that he is um, born with, for instance, he might be uncomfortable at the owner's distress and want to eliminate that. And I argue that this is like a minimal form of morality. Mm-hmm. Kind of this idea of empathy or at least the example you used. Yeah. Well, it, it's interesting, like, this is not something I'm looking for a concrete answer, but like, how do we do better as humans in understanding animals within their space and, you know, how they respond to, you know, external stimuli, how they respond to this idea of morality, if I can say that? How do we do better as humans just in your own experience? I think one of the things that we need to do is listen to animals and see them for what they are Mm -hmm. because very often we come with these preconceived notions or um we don't even stop to look at animals i think one one thing that that has made me i don't know like reflect a lot in the last months has been kind of realizing that we share our spaces with many more animals than we usually acknowledge. We tend to think of humans as living in a separate world from animals. We have animals in the natural world and then we have humans and maybe we have our pets and we include them as part of the human world, but the human world is separate from the natural world. Where actually our cities are completely populated as well by many other species of animals apart from us. Animals that are everywhere, but we somehow ignore them. Like we don't even stop to look at them or take them into consideration. Or when we do, it's because we consider them pests. We just want to eliminate them. And I think just stopping to look at them and observing their behavior and observing them in their day-to-day as, they're, as they go about their lives can be so enriching and it can really give us a sense of the fact that they also have their own lives and they also have their own interests and their lives can go better or worse and we can impact them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they, that they actually exist, that they're subjects. It's the term that I would borrow from Donaldson and Kimlika, who 
were um, the authors who really opened my eyes to to this idea. Yeah, I 100% agree. You know, a lot of what I say is truly, if you understand the ecosystem and how the ecosystem works, you start to really look at how it breaks down and like, you know, all the way to decomposers and the important roles they play and not just overlooking them as like, oh, that just is eating a dead animal or that's just eating dead waste. Being able to say like, if we didn't have that, the world would not be what we see it as today. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I would like to welcome to the show Susanna Monceau. Susanna is a philosopher working on animal minds and animal ethics and is currently an assistant professor at the Department of Logic, History, and Philosophy of Science of the Spanish National Distance Education University, UNED for short. Susanna, welcome to Water Cooler Talk. Thank you so much for inviting me. As we've been kind of talking about, you have a book that was just released in Spanish called La Zerigüeya de Schrodinger, or Schrodinger's Possum When the Work is Eventually Translated into English, that discusses how animals experience and understand death. And one of the reasons, you know, when I read your article, I wanted to and I was very excited to talk with you because I'm very intrigued with death, but I'm also very intrigued with humanity's spectrum of understanding death. You know, I've been very open on the show how I view and understand death, but in that view, I understand someone may take on death with a very different lens than myself. And so to your book and understanding how animals experience and understand death, do you believe different species of animals, heck, even animals within the same species understand death on a spectrum? Yeah, I think that death, the concept of death is best understood as a spectrum and usually has been understood in binary terms. And I think that's kind of problematic because um, the concept of death not only allows for bigger um, or smaller degrees of complexity, but also it allows for a lot of variation in terms of how you understand what death means and the kinds of emotions that you attach to death or the kinds of um, associations that you have with death and or the kind of uh, traditions or rituals um, that you attach to it and Mm -hmm. so on. And I think it's very interesting how even humans have this, you know, understanding and spectrum of death, because like, as you were saying, you know, it is this wide variety of how we bring in, you know, how people I think there's a common saying, you know, everyone experiences grief in a very different way and everyone experiences, you know, losing loved ones in a very different way. And obviously we just talked about, you know, how it's sometimes dangerous to give, you know, human characteristics to animals, but death is a concept that's shared by everything in this world. And so when you have something that's being shared by everything, you can sometimes share characteristics among different species. I think that you can, and there are probably commonalities between how different species understand death. But I think that there's also a lot of room for variation. So Mm -hmm. you can have both. You can have both commonalities and variations. So for instance, imagine, I don't know, animals that rely much more than we do on their sense of smell. Um, They might attach certain smells to death, but they, they might think of death in terms of certain smells or the absence of certain smells, things that maybe we don't usually attach to death, mm-hmm. but that might be very important for those animals. But still, there might there's still maybe this commonality in that for them, death means that certain smells stop happening and never happen again, and others appear. And we might also think that with death, uh, certain things stop happening, and other things start to happen, like bodies decomposing, um, etc. So, to my understanding, how death is taken on by different species can be different. You know, say a dog who has very good smell receptors might smell death in a different way, or coyote, as you mentioned in your article. But 
the understanding that death is final, is that, do you believe, shared? Or the finality of death? Well, I would say that in order for an animal to have something that qualifies as a concept of death, they do have to have some notion of finality. Um, but this can also be understood in very deintellectualized terms. So it can simply be the idea of just updating your expectations so that you no longer expect certain behaviors for, from an animal once you know that she's dead, for instance. That's already having some sense of the finality of death. Mm -hmm. And I don't, I don't think that, that all animals are going to understand this. What I've argued in my work is that having a minimal concept of death is not very demanding in cognitive terms and that a lot of the cognitive requirements that it has are quite important and quite useful in, in other areas of an animal's life. And so we can expect it to be fairly widespread in nature, but that doesn't mean that all animals are going to have a concept of death. Mm -hmm. And this, I, I don't know if you have any knowledge within this, this may be just an open-ended question, but is it possible to say through an MRI and within cognitive sciences to see the understanding of death within humans? Is, does that make sense, even that question? Uh, <laughs> like, well, say, I under now that I'm thinking about how this would happen, maybe it doesn't make sense. But, like, say if someone's in an MRI and they're told that something dies, would something in their brain click and say, oh, death just happened? Well, I, I am not at all an expert in neuroscience, so I can't, I can't say <laughs> okay, for sure. Okay, yeah, here. no, I, t I totally <laughs> but, understand. <laughs> but I can't, I can't imagine there being certain brain patterns associated with certain uh, forms of grief. I, I can imagine that happening, but I'm, I'm really not an expert in that. <laughs> no, fair enough. I'm not either. So uh, we can probably move on then. Before we move on, myself and Water Cooler Talk are in a mission to help get back to different parts of the community and those who help better show to where it stands today. For each new episode of the podcast, the guests will bring with them a chair of their choice to represent. On the day of their episode going live, Water Cooler Talk will give a donation to that charity in honor of the guest, as well as a global platform to spread a message of love, hope, and togetherness. And we hope you listening to this episode can join in to help spread their message to your own personal audience. So Susanna, you're your charity of choice for today's episode is Equalia. Do you mind explaining a bit about the work they do within the animal protection field and specifically, you know, animal protection in Spain and what's going on within, you know, where you're living? Yeah, so they they do uh, political lobbying in favor of animals. That's what they've been doing mostly. And they also do some research in order to, to find out what's going on, how animals are actually being treated. And what, what I like about them is that they have this very sort of hands-on approach where they're actually trying to collaborate with um, governments and with companies to actually improve the lives of animals. It's not just like a, a PETA situation where it's like they're going more for the shock value rather than, you know, they're actually putting in the work to connect with the government specifically in Spain yeah. and do the correct lobbying to help protect animals that obviously need some protection. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's more of a pragmatic approach, I mm -hmm. think. All right. Well, Susanna, are you ready? Uh, thank you for sharing them on the show. Are you ready to jump into our final news story of the episode? Sure. All right. I'll probably get some PETA hate, but hey. All right. This is from Popular Science, Science written by Elena Spivak, October 12th, 2021. These worms produce milk, but only when they kick the bucket. In a world of myriad milks from cow to oat, we now have... 
were milk. But don't get your hopes up, hipsters. This isn't a dairy substitute for human consumption, but rather a substance that worms can secrete to their offspring in an act of reproductive death. For years, researchers have observed worms, more specifically C. elegans, a one millimeter transparent roundworm, produce this quote-unquote goo and perish. But now they kind of understand why. It's milk. Well, it used to be the worm's intestines. Further, this discovery has connections to past research on C. elegans about increasing their lifespan. The study, C. elegans feed yolk to their young in a form of primitive lactation, examines this self-destructive lactation-like process. The researchers, all from University College London's Institute of Healthy Aging, studied how the known process of C. elegans venting of their own intestines through the vulva is associated with chemical pathways that control the aging process. Karina Kern, one of these studies' authors, stated, the real interesting side of it is that milk is being produced at a cost. In case you didn't know, worms are hermaphrodites, meaning they possess both male and female anatomy. So a worm can fertilize itself, but it will run out of sperm before it runs out of eggs. Once it runs out of sperm, it expels its remaining unfertilized eggs and self-destructs since it's no longer able to reproduce. One of the most interesting aspects of the study is the implication with aging. Karina Curran says that starting in the 1980s, researchers in aging studies discovered that suppressing the insulin pathways in C. elegans increased the worm's lifespan up to tenfold. They found that the gene happens to also control this reproductive death. So when the gene for creating this milk yolk is switched off, the parent worm doesn't produce it and therefore doesn't perish immediately after. When switching off this secretion, the offspring they don't really suffer either. The milk is more like a last-ditch effort when food is limited. Researchers found that C. elegans are healthier and live longer with this pathway suppressed, considering they are obviously unable to avoid their guts and die. So the connection of interest is how other pathways, potentially in humans, could stop gruesome biological processes and increase lifespans. While human parents don't literally give up their lives for their offspring, a similar thing occurs during breastfeeding. While a parent breastfeeds, their bones lose calcium as the baby receives it through breast milk, which temporarily weakens the bones. However, this transient calcium loss is eventually restored, unlike the, obviously, <laughs> the intestines of C. elegans, and is sometimes restored to higher levels than before. Worm milk will not be coming to a supermarket or cafe or coffee shop near you, but further research of it could eventually tell us more about human aging and how to increase the human lifespan. So as I was talking about earlier, Susanna, there was this report released by the Norwegian government uh, back a handful of years that asked the question, do worms and lobsters and crabs feel pain? The Norwegian government was thinking about banning live worms from bait and fishing, but through their report found that they believe worms do not feel pain, but are instead reacting to just the external stimuli when they wriggle around when hooked. And the conclusion was based on the ideas that, as I mentioned earlier, that worms lack these certain regions of the brain that we typically associate with pain as humans. And so to me, this idea goes into the idea of the possum. Does the possum understand death and dying? And what does that mean? Or does the possum understand that playing dead, quote unquote, means they're more likely to survive than not? I mean, uh, possums that still play dead are still attacked, but it's more likely that they're not. And to that, I guess my question is, and maybe this continues a bit from our first conversation on human exceptionalism, is it unfair to judge or study how an animal exists and behaves in our world by the constructs humans have already established? You know, I kind of know we've already talked about this, but I want to expand further on just your thoughts on having those constructs that are based in what humans believe. I, I have kind of mixed feelings about that question because a lot of what I've been doing 
has to do has has been precisely the 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 project of you know taking these characteristics that we take that we take to be uniquely human and then studying to what extent they are present in other animals mm -hmm. and i think that that it's important to do this because of what i said before because of these stories that we tell ourselves about how special we are and how we use these to ground you know our right to exploit the natural world as much as we want so i think it's important to address this question but I also think it's kind of disrespectful to animals to only study them uh, to see how much they are like us. Mm -hmm. I think that part of uh, what it means to gain full respect um, for animals is to actually appreciate them for what they actually are, regardless of whether they are like us at, at all or not. That's also something that I'm very interested in. And I'm, as I was telling you before, some of what I've been doing recently has been thinking about how to make um, the study of animal cognition less anthropocentric. Because so many of the questions that are asked in animal cognition and so many of the experimental paradigms are done from a human point of view and Uh, with the human mind being used kind of as a baseline. For instance, an example that, that illustrates this really well, which I always usually resort to, is the, the example of the mirror self-recognition test. This test was originally proposed as a test for self-awareness. I don't know if you, you're familiar with how te the test works. Yep. Basically, an animal is first made familiar with um, a mirror, then they are anesthetized and they will receive a mark on their forehead, they will get a red mark. And then when they wake up, um, their behavior is observed to see if they interact with the mark at all. And if they do, then this purportedly shows us something about their self-awareness. Now, I think that this experiment is like a paradigmatic anthropocentric experiment because we're saying like, well, we're not only using vision as the main sense through which you could mm -hmm. gain uh, a perception of your of your own self uh, right this is a test that ignores um, olfaction for instance which may be much more important to other animals and vision um, but it also presupposes that animals are going to care if they have a mark on their forehead <laughs> which is something that for us it's even hard to understand why would an animal not care like mm -hmm. for us like our appearance the way we look having something weird on your face that's like you know something we care about a lot but i i think that that that's doesn't necessarily have to uh, extrapolate to other species maybe to Uh, for other animals, you know, having some debris on your on your face mm -hmm. or on on your um, body is like no big deal. But if your coat smells weird, that's like, oh, my God, what is going on? So I think that experimental paradigms need to be updated to become less anthropocentric, but also the, the very questions that we ask need to be less anthropocentric. I think it's important to ask ourselves how much are other animals like humans, but also maybe how much are humans like other animals or how much are different species of animals like each other or what kind of capacities do animals have on their own 
and they may have nothing to do with what we are capable of. Yeah, a recent conversation I just had with Joe, we talked about animal intelligence, and a lot of the time, even speaking to the mirror test, you know, a lot of the time we base animal intelligence off of say, all right, a chimpanzee has an intelligence of a three-year-old. You know, that could potentially mean so many different things. You know, if we start really bringing in this idea that a chimpanzee is as smart as a three-year-old, we kind of forget about all the amazing things a chimpanzee is doing separated from humanity and separated from humans as, you know, kind of, as I mentioned before with Jane Goodall kind of doing her research. As you're saying, I think it's a very good point to really understand that animals don't necessarily have the same behaviors. I, I know like within like social animals and humans are very social creatures, there are some things that can coexist. But for the most part, say to that test that you mentioned, the mirror test, having a red dot for humans, the concept of image is so much more complex and so much more established into our ethos that is more so human that I would imagine a chimpanzee having a red dot on his head thinking about, oh, I have a red dot on my head. Now the rest of the group is going to disband me. And as you're saying, we're putting these human characteristics and these human ideas onto animals when we're not really taking the time to understand, like, as you said, you know, a lot of animals use hearing or a lot of animals use taste, you know, a lot of animals use sense of smell, you know, specifically with lions and their Jacobson organ and understanding, you know, when another lion, a female lion's in heat, you know, that's specifically through taste, but, you know, humans don't have that. And so why should we try to equate human mating to lion mating when there's just different functions that have them succeed in what they're doing. And we've evolved and succeeded both together, yes, but also separately. I, I, I really um, hate that that kind of comparison with a chimpanzee being like a three-year-old. I think that's just like infantilizing the chimp and also, yeah, leaving aside all these other things that chimps can do that a human would never be able to do. And I do understand that, you know, as from like a content creator and trying to get clicks, it's very easy to say, all right, a raven or a crow can drop a walnut in a street and they understand that a car will crush it and it'll make it easier to eat. And so they have this intelligence of a four-year-old. And so I understand from just like a marketing perspective how it's easy to get clicks. But as you're saying, it's very damaging to the study of animal rights and animal personhood and making this difference between human exceptionalism. Yeah. And it also kind of presupposes that that intelligence is something, you know, that, that humans have to 100% and then other animals can have to, to a certain degree rather than, you know, how intelligence actually is, which is the fact that people who work in comparative psychology, they usually never use the term intelligence because it's just so ambiguous and it assumes that exactly that you can rank all animals on a single scale mm -hmm. where you absolutely can't so some animals are going to be better at some kinds of tasks and others are going to be better at other kinds of tasks and animals can also out outperform us in a lot of tasks but we usually don't say you know we are like uh one month old, whatever. <laughs> animal. No, that's like a very human thing to to put things on a scale, to compare things. It's like we're always constantly thinking, even like within like the podcasting sphere, I'm always like, all right, what am I doing that the other podcast isn't doing? Or what are they doing that I'm not doing? And that's a very human thing. And it sometimes can be very dangerous when it comes to scientific studies. Yeah, I think we need to, to really realize that it it is very 
damaging to animals to, to constantly be bringing up these scales and, and constantly come up with these narratives where humans are always at the top. And it's it's definitely something that we need to change because we just need to change our attitude towards nature. We, I mean, we have no other choice at this day and age, right? <laughs> yeah, we got one earth. And I kind of want to like continue on on these, you know, limits that humans tend to place on how we understand how animals understand and kind of to that previous example of I said how worms react to stimuli in the Norwegian government. Can you explain a bit about the concept you mentioned in your article, Tactful Humans, how the study of touch can inform the animal morality debate, and these three main functions of touch, this discriminative function, this affiliative function, and this vigilance, vigilance, vigilance function? Yeah, that paper, um, what we try to do is we kind of vindicate the sense of touch because for reasons that we already mentioned, the sense of touch tends to be neglected in the study of animal cognition, animal behavior in general. Mm -hmm. Because humans are, are visual animals and auditory animals above, or that's how we tend to think of ourselves. And we usually don't pay that much attention to touch, even though it's incredibly important. But we usually just don't pay much attention to it. And so Maria Botero, she's this um, philosopher who wrote about the importance of touch for joint attention because joint attention has usually been operationalized in terms of vision. So the idea is that our showing joint attention where we, when we are both looking at the same, the same object, mm -hmm. right? When we, when we are like triangulating on an object visually. And she was studying chimpanzees at Gombe. And she noticed how chimpanzee mothers very rarely actually look into their, the eyes of their um, offspring. Um, however, they do tend to carry them with them all day and they're always touching each other. Mm -hmm. And she argued that through this touch, constant touch interaction, there can, um, they can actually develop forms of joint attention that have to do with the fact that the, the baby has like a sense of how her her mother is reacting to the world because she can feel it. She can feel when her mother is tense and when she's relaxed and so on. Mm -hmm. My co-author, Birte Frage, and me, we, we were really interested in, in this idea. And we thought about how we could apply it to the, the topic of animal morality because touch seems to be so important uh, for morality. There are so many norms governing how we are allowed to touch each other when and where and in what manner. Um, and there's all like all these debates around consent and so on. A lot of it has to do about how to navigate touch. This is not something we said in the paper, but something that we both believe that touch seems to be in a way intrinsically moral when we touch each other, right? Well, to like your example of the chimpanzee mother, like a lot of the times as humans, you know, that mother touch, you know, the baby on the shoulder is so important to connection. Yes, absolutely. Right. So so we talk about the, the three functions of touch and how these these show how touch may be important for morality. So the first one is the discriminative function, which is the idea that uh, through touch, you can gain information about the sensory qualities of an object, right? So if I, I grab this glass, um, I can tell that it's cold, um, that it's hard, etc. And I can, I can tell this with my eyes closed. I don't need vision to tell that. I can just sense it through touch. So that's a discriminative function. And this is important for morality because oftentimes animals are going to be able to gain information about the animals surrounding them just through touch. So, for instance, 
An animal who is grooming another animal might be able to sense purely through touch when the other one just doesn't want this interaction to go on any longer, is annoyed by it, whatever. They can just sense, sense it through touch. Or through touch, an animal can also sense, for instance, when another has died. I think the sense of touch here is so important because bodies suddenly become completely limp, lifeless, cold, unresponsive. Like the way they feel to touch is going to be so radically different from how a live body feels, right? So that's a discriminative function. And then we have the effective function, function, which is the fact that touch, especially in social mammals, is used to express certain emo emotions of care. And this is important developmentally. We know that it's very important for um, a social mammal to develop correctly, emotionally, um, that that she has access to her mother's touch. Mm -hmm. the, the mother's touch is just very, very important for development. But also the effective function of touch is important because through it, we can express so many moral emotions, things like empathy, you can express it through touch or um, resentment. You can also express it through avoiding someone's touch uh, or gratitude. You can express it again through affiliative touch. So, yeah, affective touch is also very important. And then the last one is the vigilance function of touch, which relates to the idea that we can touch with much, much more than just our hands. We usually think of um, the sense of touch as something that pertains to our hands, but actually we can touch with the back of our heads, our belly buttons, you know, we can touch with every single part of our bodies. Mm. Philip Mattens has argued that the fact that we can touch with all parts of our bodies shows us that the basal function of touch is not discrimination, but rather vigilance. So the idea is that touch is a sense that watches over our bodies. It tells us when something is touching us, which could be a potential threat to our bodily integrity. It's very important for us to know when we are being touched. And that's why we, we can't just feel with our hands, but we can also feel with any other part of our bodies because we need to know when, you know, there's something there that could be a threat. And we argue that this is very important for morality because it points to the fact that bodies are vulnerable and that when you allow another being to touch you, you are putting yourself in a vulnerable position. And how animals navigate this increase in vulnerability that comes through touch can show us a lot about their moral capacities. For instance, their capacity to trust in another. Mm -hmm. And in fact, we see in some animals that they have these trust games that have to do with touching vulnerable parts of the bodies. So chimpanzees, for instance, will cup each other's testicles as a way of like forming um, alliances or, or bonding with each other. Orcas will bite on each other's tongues some capuchin monkeys will poke each other's eyes. So these are all forms of what's called vulnerable touch behavior, where animals are putting themselves in vulnerable positions as a way of fostering trust. Yeah, it was so... Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say that we also sometimes see animals... Um, hurting each other on purpose. Um, and we argue that this is also another manifestation of morality, it could be a manifestation of negative moral emotions, emotions like cruelty um, or schadenfreude, which animals could also be capable of. Yeah, it was so interesting when I came across, you know, this article and read about it, because 
it's something like you were saying earlier it's you never really think about touch as a sense but touch is such a main sense to just living and understanding and being tactical and you know, all of these different things. So I appreciate you being able to explain more about that. Even I was, as you were saying, you know, kind of there at the end, I was thinking about how, you know, I used to work with uh, a dogs and training dogs and even to get the trust of a dog, you know, it's touching on the head, touching on, you know, the stomach, touching around the crotch area. And it's so important that, you know, you feel comfortable through touch and then you can kind of use those other senses to really get a great understanding of what the heck is this thing going on? Right. Right. So I think that touch is just very important in that sense because it it necessarily creates this vulnerability. Mm -hmm. We see animals just navigating this vulnerability, social animals who just have to touch each other when they groom each other, when they're mate, when they mate, when they play and just things like animals that control the strength with which um, they bite during play, yes. the, the strength with uh, with which they carry their offspring in their mouths. Uh, we see this self-handicapping in play behavior in animals where animals will actually play to a, a lower strength than, the, than they're actually capable of. They will act as though they are weaker than they actually are. Mm -hmm. And yeah, so I think that this these are all like manifestations of these like minimal forms of morality that we find in other animals. And in the end, morality has to do with just regulating life in a social group. And you need these kinds of um, emotions to regulate life in a, in a social group. That's why it's not really that surprising to find morality elsewhere as, as soon as you kind of deintellectualize it and strip it away of all this like ethical theory that we sometimes think that morality is about. Mm -hmm. That's a, that's a very interesting concept. I want to think more about that as well. Uh, once we get off this conversation, because even thinking to humans, like within different cultures, touch is such a different ball game, you know, here in the U S especially like in the Midwest touch is a very welcoming and warm thing. But if you go on the coast, it's a very cold thing. And I know within Spain, it's like a lot of touching, a lot of touching on the face, a lot of kissing. Yeah. And so it completely creates these different cultures that we necessarily don't think about, but it helps identify, all right, if I know I'm going to somebody's house and they're a hugger, I know they're from the Midwest. Yeah, exactly. I, I really experienced this when I was doing my postdoc in Vienna moved from Madrid to Vienna and I was mostly hanging out with Germans there and Germans have a very different attitude to touch mm -hmm. because I knew I knew like explicitly that they don't kiss each other this was like <laughs> something that I knew but I didn't yeah. realize how much Spanish people actually touch each other during conversations just like regular conversations will just like grab each other's hand or, or, or arm or, or like pat each other on the back, whatever. We're constantly touching each other and it's normal. And you would, I would never do it with a German, but I, it, it was kind of very salient to me mm -hmm. how I refrained from this kind of behavior because all of a sudden it felt super inappropriate. And I also experienced that a lot with, with my, my friend's babies there in, in Austria, because in Spain, and this is something that is probably quite problematic, but it's very normal for children to be touched and to seek out touch. They, they, they like to hug you and they like to kiss you. And it's, it's just very normal. And, um, there I, I, I didn't touch my friends. Um, kids because it was kind of, you know, it's, it, it wasn't okay to do yeah. it. 
Um, and it was super weird for me because I, like I had a friend whose kid I, I knew since he was born and I was there for five years. And on the day I left, he gave me a hug for the first time. And it was like super heartwarming because <laughs> I had never, ever mm-hmm. been like in touch with this with this kid. And then I come to Spain and I and I meet my friend's baby who is like three months old and she's asking to for me to hold her like she spontaneously is asking me so it's like a completely different culture surrounding touch well it's also interesting how that can relate to say love like when you think of like love languages italian spanish and you think of colder languages like russian german i mean it plays a big factor into just the aspect of touch and love and warmness and coldness and all these different factors that you never really think about yeah i think i think it, it did kind it does kind of impact how um welcoming a culture seems to me um but at the same time i also to a certain degree appreciate those um the more respectful approach of the germans so i think it's actually really good that kids there are not forced to be hugged and kissed and whatever and and it's only through the like explicit consent of the kid that you are allowed to do that I think that's actually better. And I also like coming back to Spain now here. It's super commonplace to give someone two kisses, even if they're a complete stranger, just when you're introduced to someone for the first time. Mm -hmm. And I realize now how uncomfortable that makes me and how much I actually do not (laughs) like it. So yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of weird because to a certain degree, I missed it when I was outside, but then coming back, I also see that there are problems to it especially after a global pandemic yeah you kind I of mean, have to have of course <laughs> now it's even more problematic I, I actually really hoped that the pandemic would phase out the the whole kissing thing in spain but no it's very much alive unfortunately <laughs> <laughs> it does make you think about things. I was even thinking about like bowling and how you're kind of eating food and bowling and sharing these balls. But anyways, Susanna, <laughs> thank you for taking the time to share your perspective on some of the strangest and most interesting news stories the world has to offer in a productive and meaningful conversation. I think it's only right talking about death that we get to the finale of this. Uh, <laughs> listeners, if you would like to support and follow more of Susanna's work as she explores the minds and ethics associated with animals, or even if you're a Spanish-speaking listener and you want to read her book, La Zerigüeya de Schrodinger, uh, you can do so by heading to her website, www.susannamonceau.com, or by following her on the Twitter machine at Susanna underscore Monceau, big O on that one. Once again, Susanna's website is www.susannamonceau.com. And of course, as always, those links will be included in the description of this episode and on our website, www.watercoolertalkpod.com. So this is maybe for me and you because, you know, I like to have audio-only podcasts. But as a hand talker myself, why is talking with one's hand such a better way to communicate? (laughs) I have no idea. And this is only something that I started to realize now as I've been recorded and and pictures have been taken of me and and I've been given so many online talks. I've realized how much I use my hands and I I have absolutely no idea. I think it just needs... (laughs) I needed to get my brain juices flowing or something. I don't know. I've had people (laughs) email me and say, we can hear the wind from you moving your hands on the, the, the mic so but no i think it's better it's it's you could it's more visual it's you know as you were saying we're kind of visual animals sometimes so it's being able to see like if i'm describing going fishing and i'm like this big you know how big that fish is yeah <laughs>
All right. As always, thank you to all my listeners for listening to another episode of Water Cooler Talk, the only such podcast on the internet hosted by myself and guest hosted today by Susanna, where we take the strangest and most interesting real life news stories from around the world and we'll just try and have a good old conversation about some of the ideas discussed in those bizarre news stories. So Susanna, we are now to my favorite portion of the episode where I hand off the show to you to close out this conversation however you see fit. Whatever you want to do to close out this, I trust you. Susanna, the floor is yours. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much, Adam, for this invitation. And, and it's been it's been a pleasure. It's been super fun to discuss all these topics. And I don't know, um, maybe go out in the street and look for a bird or look for an ant colony and just sit and watch them for a while. Sit and watch what they do and see what you can learn about them and try to maybe put yourself in their shoes and try to find out what it's like to be that bird or what it's like to be an ant and see what you learn. I love that. Real quick question. If you can be reincarnated to any animal, what's the animal you're choosing? I'm choosing the humpback whale. The humpback whale. All right. I love that. Yeah. Uh, listeners, until next time, peace. This is the story of a podcast that takes weird news from across the world. And while many of these stories may seem fake, they're absolutely not because they're real.